0: That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting www.capitalallocatorspodcast.com.
1: Ted Sides is the managing director of Hidden Brook Investments, LLC. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Hidden Brook Investments. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Hidden Brook Investments may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast.
0: My guest on today's show is Tom Lenihan, the Deputy Chief Investment Officer of the Rockefeller University, where he helps lead the management of the university's $2 billion endowment. Rockefeller University is a unique duck with a focused mission of improving the understanding of life for the benefit of humanity. Founded in 1901, it was the first institution in the country devoted exclusively to biomedical research. In this episode, we start with Tom's roots in Cleveland and a look at what makes a diehard Cleveland sports fan. We track his career from a start at Goldman Sachs to work at premier private equity firms, and then a transition from principal investor to allocator for just the right reason. Turning to investing, Tom discusses fundamental questions about asset allocation for an endowment and describes how a great story can help gain access to top tier venture firms. His insights give managers and allocators alike a window into the thought process of some of the most desired pools of capital. If you've enjoyed these early episodes of Capital Allocators, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or your favorite access platform for podcasts, and maybe even write a review on iTunes to help others find the show. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tom Lenihan. Tom, welcome to the show. Ted, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I always love trying to figure out how people got to where they are, particularly in the allocator seat. Um, so let's start with where you grew up.
1: Sure. So I was the youngest of eight children. Grew up in Akron, Ohio. I usually say Northeast Ohio because most folks have never heard of Akron until LeBron James hit the scene. That's right.
0: And it's playoff time.
1: It is playoff time. And uh, and we're up one nothing, which uh, I'd like to make me think is, uh, that we're, we're in good shape. But as a lifelong Cleveland sports fan, it's, it's, never, <laughs> it's never secure.
0: That was an uncomfortably close first game, too, wasn't it? It was. And I,
1: I was. I was uh, feet away. I was actually in the stands of um, Progressive Field watching Verlander take on Kluber, the Indians and the Tigers, and they flashed the score midway through, I think, the sixth inning, and it was a win's a win. It's all I got to say. <laughs> we'll take it. Are you a bigger baseball fan than basketball fan? I would say baseball more so. It's been the, the Cavaliers were founded as a team the year I was born. And so it's been to say last year was, it was the end of a drought. It was, it was my entire life. It's kind of all I knew, but, but the baseball team has obviously been around for a lot longer. Yeah. So I think growing up in, in, in Cleveland, you have to uh, have to root for the tribe.
0: And, and what is it about baseball that pulls you in?
1: I think it's, there's so many intricacies that the, the more you are, the longer you are a fan, the more you realize how important everybody's position on the field is. every player, the different decisions that the manager faces, and to a, to a casual fan, you, you you might get quite bored and say, "Oh, it's just the same old thing." But there are matchups that they're considering. There's even you know to, to each individual pitch, the interaction between the catcher, the pitcher, and the batter. If you're if you're really watching and paying attention, is, is quite fascinating, and and it, it differs all the time. And like most sports. Uh no matter how heavily you're favored, you know any given Sunday or in baseball parlance, any given day yeah. <laughs> the, uh, somebody else can win and that that proved itself on saturday night when uh when verlander was was bounced in the uh in the fifth inning
0: that's great, so did you have memories growing up or were you were you taken to games by your father or whatever?
1: We would always go to opening day and the fourth of July game those are the two games that we would always go to, and this was back in the day when when the tribe played in the cavernous old kind of Cleveland municipal stadium that could seat 80,000 people. And so most times when I was growing up, a big crowd would be 10,000 people. <laughs> so if you wanted a foul ball, you, you could have unlimited pickings because it would get hit anywhere and it would take you about a half an hour to try to reach the ball. <laughs> so uh, I have fond memories of, of those times, but not of those teams. And they started getting good when they, when they moved into, at that time it was called Jacobs Field in 94. And that was the strike year. So they were in first place going into the strike. We had high hopes, but we thought it was you know, part of the Cleveland curse. And then in 95, they got to the World Series and in 97, got to the World Series and, and you know, won a bunch of Central Division titles thereafter. Never won the big one. I remember in 97 and watching the Jose Mesa breakdown, LeBron James will talk about that often. Yeah. And so if you're from that area and you, and you felt that pain, uh, you certainly can commiserate. And I think it's therapeutic <laughs> to talk about it.
0: And these, these sort of diehard fans you see in Cleveland... What is it that keeps people coming back in that community? There are a lot of towns that have baseball teams that haven't won for a long time. And until Theo Epstein, I guess, makes his rounds to Cleveland, you never know, you know if they're going to be the next one. But what is it about the community that kind of keeps people so engaged in the sports teams?
1: I think it's a great question. Cleveland had its its heyday. I mean, it was in an, a huge industrial town. When U.S. manufacturing was top of the world and it was smack in the middle between Detroit and Pittsburgh, it was right, you know, what we now call the Rust Belt back then. It was a huge part of the the manufacturing. Uh, it wasn't even a renaissance. It was, it was just, you know, our, our coming of age, you know, post-World War II. And so they had a greatness that they could celebrate and their sports teams were great. Back in the day, Cleveland has won a couple World Series. I don't think anybody alive can can be witness to that. But if you, if you trust the record books, <laughs> if you, <laughs> you, can, you can go back and actually check check the record, the Cleveland Browns had had you know some incredible years pre Super Bowl era. Uh, Cavaliers weren't really around, but they had a taste of greatness. And and folks really want to get back to that. And if you are a diehard fan, it's, it always makes me wonder. People ask. Now, now that the Cavs have won, are you a uh, are you a bandwagon fan or a Fairweather fan? And I, I would say any any Northeast Ohio sports fan, generally speaking, that's impossible. <laughs> we have endured so much that you yeah. cannot anybody you know. The, the, and If that's the case, and the bandwagon is is wide open, anybody can jump on it <laughs> and join yeah. and, and be welcome. But I, I think they had that past greatness. They they know what it tastes like, and they remain forever hungry for it again. And hope does spring eternal. That's
0: great. I think somehow we're going to draw parallels later when we're talking about money managers and (laughs) ebbs and flows and those organizations. Uh, So you mentioned school on the East Coast. And you went to Georgetown undergrad, that's right? That's right. And from there to the venerable Goldman Sachs Investment Banking Program. So you came out in 92, which was right at the bottom end of the recession. So what was that like getting there then?
1: Yeah, it was quite interesting. I was a finance undergrad and didn't really know much about what investment banking actually was in terms of a day to day activity. What do people do in that job?
0: I remember, because I also graduated in 92, I remember going through investment banking interviews and not being able to understand, and no one explained to you what, it didn't seem like it was investing, and it didn't seem like going to the bank to get your money out of the, well, then it was a teller. And I just remember all my friends who had been there knowing what a grind it was back then. And so I thought maybe they wouldn't weren't telling you because it was such a terrible job that
1: <laughs> you just didn't <laughs> want to do it. Well, I knew you would work hard, and I knew you would learn a ton. And from my perspective, I didn't really know much after that. When they would ask, "What do you what do you see yourself doing?" and it was it was an analyst program, so two to three years. What do you see yourself doing in three to five years? I said, "I don't know." <laughs> so, but for the next two or three, I'm happy to to build up the intellectual capital as best I can. Yeah. So so fell in into Goldman Sachs uh, was working in their financial institutions group, and back then it was it was one of the leaner years. So. Be, I think Think, as you mentioned, because of coming out the recession, there they hadn't recruited as many folks the year before. And usually when that happens, they always get the timing off. And so our particular year was a little bit lower than average in terms of the number of folks that they hired. And we just started getting busy. And in ninety-three started really picking up. I was in the FIG group for two years. I worked a, a year in the New York office and a year in the London office. And I came back to New York and worked in there. PIA group, which is their principal investment area. That was the time in my career where I thought I would like to do private equity investing. And like investment banking, really didn't know what that was, but just thought it would be fun to try, particularly before business school. So if that was something I wanted to do after business school, I could at least talk about some experience beforehand and, and be a little bit more knowledgeable about it. That was a group that just seemed to touch all parts of the organization, wherever ideas were bubbled up. You know, it didn't matter geography, didn't matter sector. They they would all kind of find their way to Rich Friedman's group, and uh, and he could either do them or not, and they would they would move on. So, I thought it was just an interesting crossroads you know for the firm and, and having an eye on everything that the organization's up to, and it strictly at that time it was just for it was the firm's balance sheet, so that was the only money. there was no outside capital. that was all the partners' money, and they were this was pre iPO they paid extra close attention to kind of what was going on there, as you might imagine.
0: What was that decision point? So now you're in the PIA group, you're seeing all of these incredible things happening. Had you make a decision to go, or um, yeah, I imagine you could have stayed as well.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting because they at that time. I think nowadays it may be more common. At that time, it was kind of a two or three year gig, and you would you'd be pretty much pushed out the door to to go on. I had an opportunity to to be promoted directly to be an associate in the fig group back in the in the fig group back in investment banking, and I would gotten my fix on PIA and decided that I actually really wanted to do that for a career and be a direct investor. What'd you get out of business school? I think the best part of business school for me is the people that you meet and the network that you can create. And it's up to you on how much you want to use that network and for purposes, but it's always there. And as we, you know, this is a big reunion year for, for both undergrad and business school for me, right. which is, as we talked about before, it's depressing, but at the same time, it's amazing to think about how far you can grow as an individual. Yeah.
0: And You were at Stanford. The weather was too nice. So you came back
1: east. I had worked for the summer uh, back in Cleveland for McKinsey. And that answered two incredible questions that I had. Number one, did I ever want to move back to my hometown to work and live? And the second question was, did I ever want to do management consulting? And it answered those two questions emphatically, which was, nope, I don't (laughs) want to go back home and live. Love to go visit, but I don't want to live back there. And the second question was, don't want to do management consulting. Once you get your taste, I think, of the principal world and actually taking ownership of your decisions, I think it's very hard to go back. So given my prior financial institutions background from the FIG group, I actually got in touch with the folks. At that time, the group was called Martian-McLennan Capital, and it was a wholly owned subsidiary of of Martian-McLennan, the large insurance broker and it was the only principal operation that they had in, in the whole business. They owned Putnam back at the time. They owned uh, Mercer Management Consulting, and they had this little tiny operation in Greenwich, Connecticut, called Marsh Capital. Now here to they're now they spun out, and, and now they're completely their own independent company called Stone Point. But same suspects that were there. Uh, and
0: Steve Freeman was a Goldman. Guy. Steve
1: Friedman was like, yep. So he, he and Chuck Davis both went limited in 94. And I had worked with Chuck. He was a partner in the FIG Group. Uh, he was head of global uh, investment banking services worldwide. But he also was a partner in the FIG Group. So I had actually worked directly with him on a number of occasions. Steve Friedman had only met once during the Allstate IPO. I, I showed him to his seat for the, uh, for the closing dinner. <laughs> uh, and that was my role at the time. But they, uh, my original boss was Jeff Greenberg. And so it was. this was his first job. This is so now 1997. His first job out of AIG was at Marsh Capital. And I didn't know this at the time, but the master plan was that he would ultimately become head of all of Marsh McLennan. And this was the, the, kind of the entry point. When he did that, about a year and a half into my tenure at Marsh Capital, Steve and Chuck took over. And so from my perspective, you went from, you know, one incredible leader to two and folks that I actually had even some prior history with. So that was incredible to be able to work with them. And and Jeff was obviously still involved in the investment committee, so you still had access to him. And then a gentleman named Bob Clements kind of rounded out the four horsemen. And Bob was the father of the Bermuda reinsurance market. You know, on behalf of Marshall McLennan and actually J.P. Morgan. That's that's how a lot of those companies started into existence. So I was very fortunate to be able to have direct exposure. Our team was pretty small back then. It was probably seven people, seven investment professionals, and be able to work with those four folks and just kind of see how they operate. So that was a, a great situation that got even better. And what were some of the key lessons?
0: You said you have these great mentors. What did they teach you?
1: So Jeff Greenberg, I, I use this a lot with with uh, with my own team, and especially when we bring new people on board. Something that will always stick with me. One of the things he taught me was when there's a hole that needs to be dug, pick up a shovel and start digging. And what I took that to mean was everybody's on the same team. We're all pulling together for the same goal. There's not this huge... Delineation in terms of roles and responsibilities. At the end of the day, there's one responsibility, and that's to accomplish whatever goal it is, whether it's the best risk weighted returns you can generate, whether it's the uh, getting the IPO of Allstate across the finish line, whatever it takes. And I actually use that with my kids as well.
0: <laughs> that's a good one. That's a good one.
1: How long did you stay at Marshmack
0: then? I was there for four years. And what was the impetus for the decision to move?
1: So this was, uh, I was there from 97 to 2000. And in 1990, I want to say maybe it was end of 98 going into 1999. So when I graduated from business school, there was a classmate who went to a, a, a firm that nobody had ever heard of, thought there was no chance that they would ever exist in you know, five years from now, let alone 20 years from now, called Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm going to McKinsey. What is she thinking? Uh, that, that person is uh, is clearly lost. All they sell are books and maybe they sell CDs and that's it. Boy, was she uh, was she the wise one. So, technology was just coming out, and we had just had Mark Andreessen with you know Netscape, and then all of a sudden we had you know one of the very first e commerce sites with Amazon. There just wasn't a whole lot going on in that space, and I was there at Ground Zero you know watching it all happen, but it just it was very early days. A lot of the venture capitalists out there i'm sure knew you know, knew what was going on, but to the outside world, to the mainstream, it was going to take a little bit longer. So, didn't know much about what was happening in the internet.
0: This seems to be a pattern here. you get to banking not knowing much? Get to
1: PIA not knowing much? Okay. <laughs> Bumbling through life. <laughs> <laughs> and just hopefully keeping your head above water long enough so you don't drown. Um, yeah. So, w- when I was at, at Marsh, we came across a, a company called SoftBank. And at that time we actually knew they were big. We you know they weren't they weren't this you know kind of small little group, but we said, wow, they're pretty big and they're actually pretty big in this emerging area called e-commerce and e-finance in particular. They wanted to build, you know, it's a Japanese organization, they actually wanted to build a karetsu of companies that would do online lending with e-loan, that would do online stock trades with, with e-trade. They had this whole web. This was back in the late 90s, all kind of figured out. And and they actually gave birth to all these different pieces of the puzzle, some of which are still around today. One of the companies that they started was called Insweb. And Insweb was the very first online comparison shopping tool that you would use as an individual to shop for insurance. So if you wanted to buy auto insurance or homeowners or life insurance, uh, all personal lines, so n- nothing commercial at the time, you could go there. And instead of you know what you, the good old days, you maybe would work with an outside broker. Maybe you would dial you know phone numbers and, and call and get comparison quotes. This was the first time you could actually go online and put in your personal information and you could get a comparison amount of quotes. So revolutionary at the time, given who we were at Marsh Capital, one of the larger direct insurance investors in the world, made sense for us to take a look at it. Long story short, we ended up making the investment. And I think it was, it was relatively small, a couple million dollars, but we made, I think it's four million dollars. We made four times our money in 18 months. And, uh, <laughs> it goes back to another lesson that I learned this time from Steve Friedman. This was uh, it, the, the Innsweb went, we were on the advisory board. Uh, Innsweb ended up going public, I think in 1999. And we could have sold out in the IPO. We weren't a huge shareholder, but we turned four into 16 and thought it was easy. And, I remember talking to Steve Friedman saying, you know, what do you think we should do with this? And I said, well, I don't know. I think we could probably, you know, take take our bait back so we get our cost basis back and let the, the rest of it accrete and, and to see where we go from here because it's growing like a weed. And he said, you know, Tom, I think maybe we should take the money and run. <laughs> Let's not look a gift horse in the mouth. That was in 99. So we did it. We made our money and moved on. And I thought in end of 99... This e commerce and internet stuff is easy. Wow. This is like, oh, it was. Yeah. And and ground zero was on the West Coast going back to California. So I actually was recruited to a firm called FT at the time, it was called FT Ventures, Financial Technology Ventures, which is now called FTV Capital. They were heavy on, on the banking side, but they didn't really have anybody that knew insurance. And so they were looking for somebody to fill that gap. And I left Marsh Capital. And started FT Ventures in March of 2000, and I remember April fifteenth. That's what happens when you know day. what you're doing. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> the shortest tenure of my career. Uh, it was tax day, April fifteenth, two thousand. That was the first mini crash of Nasdaq, and I kept on crashing throughout my 18 month tenure there. And so, a great lesson that I learned at that time, not so much about you know, don't don't chase the uh, the hot the next hot thing. It was more so I learned about myself, I'm not a good venture capitalist, and it's hard.
0: And what was it about the process of venture capital that led you to think it wasn't for you? Because anyone could look at that landscape and say there's 25 companies doing the same thing, what am I supposed to do? And then you create criteria, you say, no, I want the most charismatic leader, I want the the businessman who had past success. So there's ways you could filter it and make the bet anyway. Yeah. But what part of the process did you come away saying, yeah, I'm not going to be great at this?
1: I think at the end of the day, for me, I wasn't a technologist, didn't fundamentally understand the technology or what it would take. If it, if it looks good in the demo, what does it actually take for it to work in the real world? So from my perspective, that was just, I was just completely a fish out of water.
0: So you're, you're at that moment. So you're now, you've gone down a path, this fantastic pedigree of undergrad, great investment firms. And you're at that moment where you say, "Uh-oh, I walked down the wrong road here." <laughs> so at that time, what did you do? How did you think about how to make that transition?
1: I was in San Francisco and, and loved it being back out there. So that's why I kind of found my way back and didn't want to leave at the time. But I did. It was a soul-searching moment, and it it it, it took. 12 months for me to figure out that I was not going to be a good venture capitalist. 18 months to actually do anything about it. <laughs> but for those, those six months, I knew it was without, without question and with the utmost conviction that I needed to do something different. So I said, what do I like to do? I love doing the principal investing world. Coming from investment banking with that training, coming from PIA, from that year in PIA, coming from, from Marsh Capital, I could understand and evaluate existing businesses way better than Trying to identify the next new thing and maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. But looking at something that has cash flows, that has revenues, that has customers, diligencing those, trying to understand what what could be optimized if something is broken, what's broken, what could we do about it, that was much more my comfort zone. So, I, but I also like the technology. So I started. I wasn't a technologist, but I kind of liked this idea of what technology could do in terms of growth and in terms of margins. I I could see that at least what my my eighteen months in, as a venture capitalist I could see what technology could do in terms of disruption. So did what I thought was a, was a, a hybrid. While FT Ventures was a bridge for me to get from kind of the old world into technology. Going to Vista Equity Partners, it was literally down the street, down California Street, maybe four or five blocks closer to the Ferry Building. That was a chance to stay in technology, but with companies that have a need to exist, have a right to exist have existing customers more established. And Vista was a couple years old at the time. I think it was 98, 99. And I I joined in 2001. They had just been around for a little bit. And they had one investor who provided all the capital. And so there wasn't fundraising involved. They actually had captive sources of money, which I thought was always a good thing. Uh, That was the case at Marsh. That was the case at Goldman when I was there. And they were investing in technology enabled businesses and services. So a lot of that translated into kind of pure software companies, but it could span across any industry and it could include financial services. So at the time they hadn't done any financial services investments. The two investments that I worked on when I was there of the eight that we completed happened to be in financial services, um, primarily because that was where my network was. So I guess I didn't, didn't go too far away from the, from the, uh, from the mothership, but it was terrific to be able to get back to, a Goldman culture, if you will, with a lot of folks being trained in a similar way to myself. Describe that culture. Very team oriented. So when I th- again, when I think of what Chris Cole taught me, when I think of what Jeff Greenberger taught me, there are no pre-subscribed roles or or divisions. If if there's a hole that needs to be dug, pick up a shovel. So everybody was working on kind of everything. You all had your own responsibilities, and you're all in charge of your own timesheet. And so in what charge of what you thought you should a- attend to. But other than that, you can draw on the resources of the firm. And so if something was happening, and back then it was, deals were hard to come by. And so there was no no shortage of things that you could do. But in terms of things that you actually wanted to do, you had to create a lot of opportunities yourself. You would, you would get tons of inflow from investment bankers and other types of deal flow. This was the cold call model was being implemented, but by you know, a handful of the summit and TA type folks, they were the the pioneers. Now it seems like it's complete commonplace for any, any group, you know, almost any size, they have some element of kind of reaching out, kind of cold calling. But back then it was, it was just tough. You had to really kind of be scrappy. And what I loved about it was there was no, you didn't come in in the morning and have a checklist or a to-do list of things to knock off uh, one by one. It was the only thing that you really could control in the world was your time and how you spent it. And so, Uh, you had to be very judicious with it, but you, there was no limit. You you know, you could be as scrappy as you wanted to call up the CEO if you wanted to find out who, who owns the company and use some of the, the, the skills you learn in investment banking, which is really learning to dig under the covers. Don't take anything for granted, critical, be critical about your thinking, test hypotheses, but dig deep. And, and and try to think of creative ways. And it, it involved, you know, I did very little selling when I was at, at Goldman. But that was, you know, as if I had stayed there, that was absolutely part of of the professional progression is you ultimately needed to, in addition to executing the business, you needed to sell additional business. And I think that's the case with consulting. It's kind of the case with any professional service. Same thing with with private equity investing. Eventually, you need to be a deal quarterback. And, you know, as I would say, you need to hunt. You, you need to catch it. You need to skin it. You need to, you need to you need to kill it and eat it, uh, and then and then move on and do it again. Uh, you had to have all of those skills to be considered, you know, a true deal professional. And I loved it. And and and, and there was our our group was pretty lean at the time. I think maybe you know, in addition to, to to Robert and Steve, there were kind of three of us as deal quarterbacks and maybe three associates, and that was it. So there was no limit on what you could do if you wanted to go and jump on a plane and go down to, to Texas because you thought there was a great idea down there, chase it down <laughs> and yeah. bring, bring it home.
0: And and yet today you're not in that business anymore. So somewhere along the way, with, with all this sort of great experience and fantastic first-rate firms, even if it was early days for them, how did you come to decide to leave and, and move on to the allocator side?
1: So I had just gotten married and just had... Our first child, uh, my daughter, she was born in two thousand and three. And when they're really young, there's not a whole lot that the dads can do <laughs> except just watch and try to help out whoever they can around the house. But not a, not a whole lot we can do to, to rear the child at that age. But as they get older, very quickly that 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 tide turns. And for personal reasons, had felt that I loved the direct side of the business, but it's incredibly intense, and and the type of business that I was working with. If you're fortunate enough to have to get one to get a tiger by the tail, it takes over your life. I didn't love the fact that it can be kind of all-consuming, and, and I did learn that from my analyst days back at Goldman that everything else comes second. <laughs> and so I thought, is there a happy medium where you can actually have a, a better balance between work and personal life? Because they're so intertwined in those types of careers, they're kind of one and the same. And if it gets to be too much on, on one end, then the other end can really suffer and uh, and can can permeate to the other side. So. I started thinking at that time in two thousand and five is there is there another alternative where I can have all this terrific exposure and excitement to the direct world without having to kind of be on the front lines? So I was recruited by a firm in Connecticut that was miles away from where I started my career at Marsh Capital in a town called Wilton, Connecticut. It was common fund capital, and the more and it was part of the common Fund for nonprofit organizations. At the time when I was being recruited, it was a forty-two billion dollar AUM organization, and I said, "Oh my!" Now I feel really stupid. That is the quietest <laughs> forty-two billion dollar yeah. firm I've never I've never heard of it. And I, I worked right down the street, literally right down the road. And then, as I started doing more research and learning more about that organization in particular, I said, "Wow, what a, an amazing history!" Um, nineteen, I think it was nineteen seventy-one when they were formed, and their sole mission was best of class. Money management across all different sectors and all different products for one set of clients, and it was all nonprofits. So they themselves were nonprofits serving other nonprofits. I thought, wow, what an interesting mission. And again, I had never thought about that world before, and always been kind of a diehard capitalist. But I thought, wow, I could actually do what I do now from the LP side and actually back people like Avista or you know groups that I apply to they would never consider me as as a principal <laughs> investor like GTCR and HIG and Golden Gate you know you Bain Capital you name your favorite uh, favorite GP but I could actually invest with them and Common Fund had a stellar reputation primarily because their mission was so pure and the better that they do as investors the better everybody does including a lot of these folks alums and you know medical organizations that they want to support and what have you so that's what that's what led me to cross the chasm
0: absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. And so today you sit as the Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Rockefeller University. Why don't you talk a little bit about how you go about even thinking about having a large pool of capital... And managing it,
1: we have two billion under under management, which I think is a terrific size. It's not too small, where there's certain things that are off limits, and it's not too big, where we feel that we have to do everything. I work hand in hand with my boss, Amy Falls, who is our chief investment officer. I met her in 2005 when I started a common fund. She started. She gave up a 16 year career at Morgan Stanley as a. Fi- she ultimately was the head of fixed income uh, research. She had a calling, not dissimilar from mine to become the first CIO at her alma mater at Andover, where she went to high school, Phillips Academy at Andover. The way I came across her was one of the first things that she did was invest in a common fund product. So she became one of our clients and came onto our advisory board. So a couple of times a year, I would have interaction with her. And she really stood out in my mind as an advisory board member who gave advice. It seems like a novel, crazy idea, <laughs> but she truly did. When... Amy was hired in 011, so she had been six years as the Andover CIO, and then Rockefeller called and asked. They were really looking to take the, the program in a different direction. And what that meant was there were no sacred cows. So they were bringing somebody on board, and in this case it was Amy, to, to take a, a clear, clean look at everything and make a recommendation.
0: So let's dive into the investment process. How do you start? So, what set of beliefs do Amy and you bring about investing that colors how you think about managing this pool of capital?
1: So, I think first and foremost, it, it is we, we try to figure out what is our goal at the end of the day, and what and what is our role uh, on behalf of the organization, and and how do we fit in there? And that that really, I think, that has to be the starting point. So. The endowment uh, we're a little bit unique, but certainly not unprecedented. Where the endowment earnings from the endowment support about a third of our operating budget every year, so not dissimilar from your alma mater at Yale. It's about I think I just read the annual report. It's about thirty four percent, very similar to Rockefeller. So it's a huge and important piece of the overall puzzle. So that's going to have implications for liquidity. As well as risk management. So it's, you know, you've been in this business a long time. Whenever folks talk about, you know, what are your returns? What are your returns? And we get measured, you know, we're supposed to be investing forever. And when people ask, what's your time frame? Is it 20 years? Is it 50 years? Is it your career? It's forever. It's perpetuity. At least certainly, I mean, most groups, but certainly with Rockefeller, you know, we'll never, we'll, we'll never heal everything <laughs> or find cures for everything. So we've been out for 110 years. We want to be around forever. So people are grading us every June 30, well, you know, maybe end of August by the time the numbers start to roll in, how were your, your you know, your annual numbers. They matter for sure. And, you know, certainly matters to our, our compensation committee and, and how, um, how we operate on a, on a, you know, a budget basis, but we're investing forever. So it's, it's that delicate balance of short term traction, but for long term, you know, kind of fundamental building blocks. And, Everyone talks. You know, I call it the you know the the, out, the the sweepstakes that come out with all the numbers. People don't ever ask you what was your risk, what was your standard deviation, and you know, how did you get there? You know, in terms of your allocation, what did you do to to push the envelope or not?
0: So it's an interesting question, right? Because if you look at this pool of capital with a time horizon of forever, as long as your governance structure is on board, short-term risk shouldn't matter that much. Now we know it does after two thousand and eight and. it's hard to right-size budgets. So how do you take that and apply it specifically to Rockefeller that really does have this long time horizon when it comes to thinking about asset allocation or however you go about the approach?
1: Well, fundamentally, at the end of the day, we have to meet that spend rate obligation on an annual basis plus inflation. And what's the spending rate? So we're now today at 5.5%, which is still high, still aggressive. Plus inflation. So whatever number you want to use, two, 3%. Now that's not dissimilar from anybody else. But what it does mean is that's, again, that's your long term bogey is maintain the purchasing power of the endowment. And when you're 10 or 15% of the budget, not as big a deal. When you have tuition dollars that flow in, not as big a deal. When you have gifts from alumni, there's lots of different levers you can pull. We don't have any of those. So we're unlike a traditional university. Nobody pays tuition. Quite the opposite. We actually, if you want to, be technical. We, we have negative tuition. <laughs> we actually pay people. Uh, yeah, right. They're heavily recruited and they're paid stipends to attend Rockefeller. And we do have graduates. So we have alums. They go off and do wonderful things in the science world, but they, they almost think of Rockefeller. Like a job because they're paid and and they're scientists, so they don't think of it as as something you give back to, if you will, so we don't get that source of income either, so that puts additional strain on the endowment and it just it just it just means that when we think about fundamentally how do we allocate assets and when, where do we start? we can't think just about return. we have to think about liquidity because we pull off. In round numbers of a $2 billion endowment, we pull off about $100 million a year, even more so $25 million a quarter that we got to find something to redeem from to be able to fund that. In addition, we have to be around forever. And so we have to have some growth in there as well. So once you you cover things from a macro perspective in terms of knowing where you need to go with your mission, uh, then you can turn into the micro. And then you start to figure out how do we actually generate those returns on an annual basis for the long haul.
0: And how do you you think about it in terms of an asset allocation approach, a factor approach, opportunistic investment? There's a lot of different mental models you could use to get into it. That's right. What's been the one that you've adopted?
1: Primarily, it started out out originally with an asset allocation approach to it. And we looked at where, we, where Rockefeller was at the time back in 011 and where we thought it needed to be to accomplish several goals, generate the returns that we needed, managing the risk within certain acceptable parameters, and then having liquidity.
0: Where was Rockefeller when you got there and what direction did you take it? So
1: one of the big things that stood out was that as it relates to long short hedged equity funds, Rockefeller had a twenty five percent allocation and was pretty much on target at that at that level. Amy will tell this was this predated me. I didn't join for about five months after she started. She told me how what she did when the first time she was she was hired and when she she went around to every one of the, the the trustee members on the committee and said, so why do we have 25%? Not trying to lead the witness, whether that was good or bad, just why are we there? And she had a myriad of answers. Myriad of inconsistent answers. Yes. Yeah. To, from the from the spectrum to, I didn't know we had that much. <laughs> to... Um, <laughs> Uh, why? Was that a bad thing? <laughs> and so it was a lot of different answers. And so I think one of the first things she said was, well, we, we meaning the investment office, we need to do a much better job yeah. of communicating. And then, quick
0: step back there. The board at Rockefeller is very sophisticated, if I remember right.
1: That's right. So we have 10 members today, members of the investment committee, all different backgrounds. Uh, there are private equity people on there. There are public equity people. There are hedge fund folks. There are quantitative managers. But they're all
0: super sophisticated investment people Absolutely. and yet they all had very different opinions about what the allocation should be that's exactly for right long short and
1: you know they meet you know we meet five times a year it's tough you know for 2 hours and so it's it's really tough and and you know if if you've sat on committees as as you know you have you have your day job and then you have other activities which certainly contribute to what you do in the broader sense but when they take up, you know, 10 hours of your year, you're always thinking about them in different ways and you can tap into them a different times. But in terms of actually sitting down for the meeting, it's 10 hours of, of the year. So you don't necessarily get everybody's, you know, absolute full attention 24 by 7, nor should you.
0: So you started with this 25% allocation of long-short equity. What did the rest of the book look like then? Do you know,
1: There was 15% dedicated to private equity and venture capital. Mm-hmm. There was virtually no investments in natural resources. There was, I think, think it was a 15% allocation to real estate. And there was an 8% allocation to fixed income and a couple percent in cash. And then the remainder was long-only equity.
0: So you're starting with a question of, is this where, great question, is this where we should be? That's right. Blank question. It sounds like Amy concluded,
1: no. (laughs) (laughs) It started with the, the, the lowest hanging fruit was, wow, we have too much long short hedged equity. She kind of thinks of that as uh, expensive equity. So in terms of what we're getting, in terms of exposure. So this work, it does kind of, does it blend into other things? And of just thinking of it strictly as asset allocation and, and targeting buckets. We think of exposures as well. So that's giving us a lot more equity beta, even though it's more muted because they have the hedge feature and component to, to hopefully monitor uh, and manage the volatility so it's not quite as volatile. At the end of the day, at least that group of hedge funds are folks that are giving us equity beta. We had very little in in the other types of hedge funds, which we've expanded over over our tenure, in what we've called absolute return managers. And those are folks that really have the ability to they can dampen volatility, but they don't do it through necessarily through shorting equities. They do it by rotating amongst different asset classes. So they can do equities, they can do credit, they can do real estate. So do those tend thing.
0: to be Multi-strategy managers, or do they tend to be more macro managers?
1: Multi-strategy, okay, and it can it can differ between folks that again, there are credit specialists. So we divide that bucket into folks that are true multi-strat that are really that are doing real estate in Japan, as an example. They're doing activist equity investing in the United States. They're doing um, credit in Spain. All different types of geographies, all different types of, of asset classes but then there's also credit folks that can do multi multi strategy within the credit spectrum which is a, which is a big place. So that was a very small exposure built that up to now where it is today about 20% of the overall book split roughly not quite 50-50. There's probably 8% of that 20 that is in the credit side, 12% it's on the on the what we call the true multi strat, you know, multi asset class side. And that was up from about I think, you know, single digits from where where we inherited it. On the other side of the of the hedge fund slice where that was twenty-five percent, we reduced that down to twelve. And we're currently today at about ten. So a lot of that required letting go managers as opposed to just trimming exposures across the board. One of the things that we're big believers are is that everybody having a meaningful impact on the endowment. So not having manager creep or having, you know, everybody having 1%. We, we want to have of all the public managers, roughly the book is today, two-thirds public exposures, one-third private exposures between private equity venture, natural resources, and real estate. Of the folks that are on the public side, we think between 3 and 5% per each manager of NAV makes sense. So that on average, that might give us, you know, 15 to 20 managers on the public side. On the private side, we want to have a little bit more diversification. We might have a little bit more sector specialty. So folks that might, you know, like a Stone Point who just does financial services or a Vista that just does technology. We think it's okay to have groups like that But we don't want them to have too much because if they're a sector that is out of favor, it could be out of favor for a decade. And we kind of want folks that can make money at any time period. But there's a role in the portfolio, but it should be more muted. So on anywhere between 1% and 2% on the private side. So we might have the same number of managers on the private side, even though it's half the size of the public's, but they're a little more dispersed and diverse. And so when you come up with
0: asset classes... Right. there's always these questions of is that the is it a bucket that you're filling because of the character the risk and reward characteristics, the way they correlate with other asset classes? And then you have the whole world of factor investing which is, well, it doesn't matter what you call that bucket. What matters is what you own and how that's exposed to the markets? How have you debated back and forth the merits of asset classes, the names of your asset classes, the exposures underneath them, and used that to sort of drive, really the engine, the managers are doing what they do and hopefully adding value in the, in the bucket they're in, but the engine is asset allocation.
1: So it's a great question. And I would say it's, it's something that we continuously debate. Every, every February on a very regular basis, we make sure that we dedicate a portion of that meeting to talk specifically about asset allocation. It's just important to... And at that, at that meeting, we, we not only just go through where we are and where might we be, we go through our assumptions And and retest those and re-underwrite those. Do they make sense in today's world?
0: What are the types of assumptions that you're talking about?
1: Primarily, it's the big three. So it would be what are our our long-term return assumptions? What are our long-term risk assumptions, which primarily is volatility uh, and standard deviation? And then the third piece would be correlations and cross-correlations amongst each other. Are we really getting a benefit from diversification and if so can we quantify it and how much are we getting and if we were to tweak things what would that impact
0: have so what's an example of sort of the most active debate that came out of this past February's meeting?
1: So, you know, I hate to use names at the risk of my own career, but Jim Simons is on our committee from Renaissance, and he is a life trustee of Rockefeller. He's been involved for, you know, I think, I think 30 years, 30 plus years. So um, a terrific uh, benefactor for what we do. He brought, it wasn't this past February, but two Februarys ago, he said, you know, we don't invest in asset classes. We invest in people. So you're making assumptions in our asset allocation mix of asset classes. And what we think we could expect what kind of premiums we should demand for giving up liquidity. We're happy to give up liquidity. That's one of the most valuable assets we have is our liquidity. And and we couldn't make our targeted rates of return without sacrificing it. But how do we? How should we? And we invest in managers. They're the ones that do it. So whatever assumptions we have for the asset class, that's great. How are our managers doing? Are they doing exactly what we're modeling and what we're projecting? And are they giving us – we don't have to be theoretical at all. We can actually look at actual data. Now, the issue that we have a little bit is that the manager lineup that we have today is drastically different from what we had. Sure. Four years ago, five years ago, in which case, as you know, the issue with just data—you know—we're a very data-intensive business. But um, sometimes the the the, the track record isn't complete. Either the managers weren't around that long, or we've switched things around quite a bit. So there's a little bit of an exercise to make sure that when you, when you're looking, when you're back testing and looking, you know, at, at at data backwards for twenty years. There may be, it's like, you know, I think in Jurassic Park, there may be some gaps in the DNA sequence (laughs) that you have to plug the frog DNA in to, to get it to be complete. But you do the best you can. And then it comes up with some very interesting conclusions. And in some cases, we were like, wow, we actually kind of thought that we should be getting. I'll just use you know, privates as an example. We should be getting kind of four to five hundred basis points above the public market equivalent, whatever that is. It doesn't have to be S and P five hundred just because that's kind of one of the main metrics we look at. Uh, maybe it should be the Russell you know two thousand because most of what they're investing in the asset class is even smaller than that. So S and P five hundred they're not you know most of our managers are not investing in in Fortune one thousand companies. So taking a look at that and seeing are we getting that is it, is it appropriate and is it appropriate that we should demand that? And second of all, are we getting that? And we were pleasantly surprised to see that, not in all cases, but as a whole, we actually were getting more than that. And that's kind of what we're budgeting that we hope to get that. And we actually are are doing better.
0: So you turn that around. So you've, you've said, okay, let's look at what the people, the managers we employ are actually doing. You do some research and find, wow, the private managers are doing even better than we thought. Does that then color your asset allocation?
1: It does. It does. Having said that, we still Want to try to apply some outside judgment, and, and doesn't make sense for us to get the target. And and, and other groups, you know, they their strict adherence to whatever the, the the allocation target is, you know, you get there, and you take all of your all of your own kind of personal alpha based on manager selection, and you're you're graded by uh, how well you do, you know, kind of adherence to that. We're not that strict. I would say that we definitely believe that um, asset allocation plays a part. But we also are not wholly driven that we actually have to get to, to whatever targets we establish. Another one, we you know we we have a five percent target to fixed income, so we reduced it from the eight percent that we had before. We've never gotten there. <laughs> Amy is a fixed income person; it it keeps her up at night. It pains her not to have that exposure. At the levels that we're hoping for, you know, to combat other types of risks like the risk of deflation, which wasn't too long ago, you know, a year, you two years ago, where that was a real risk. It's it's certainly happening in other parts of the world, but it was a real risk in the United States that we'd actually be facing, you know, huge deflation, and we had nothing in the portfolio that would do well in that environment. We've maintained around a two percent of effective allocation of fixed income in terms of you know against our five percent target, but we've we've it's incredibly short duration. We've been staring at this shift in Federal Reserve policy, thinking it was going to come years ago, and it never did. And now it's starting to happen, but in a very muted way. Now we sure don't want to get up to five percent or have anything with duration. But you know, in our business, we realize that you know we, we we try not to keep score too much because you can think that you know we're right, but if you're not, if it's not timely, you're wrong. But you know, it's <laughs> it's one of
0: those great unknowns say lesser known aspects of asset allocation and policy targets that were all forced with market timing decisions, so exactly what you're talking about in fixed income oh, our target's five we didn't want to be at five because we knew that rates were going to go up at some point in time, so we're under okay that was the wrong decision. now we really don't want to be at five with the same – but that's effectively a market timing decision It is. So how do you work with the investment committee and and your team? So just sort of recognize hey, these are the these are the decisions we're making, these are the bets we're making relative to what our espoused policy target is that we set, say last February.
1: Yeah, I, I think I think the key is again what 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 we inherited and what we've been able to to build with the committee is you want to have that goodwill with the committee for the times when you really need it, and you don't get that overnight. Uh, it's it is part of a long term process and, and a a trust. That is built up every day, every meeting, every decision and you keep them informed uh, and, and you ask their advice. You know, we don't have all the answers. They don't have all the answers and I don't say we muddle through it together hardly, but we, we make sure that everybody dissents. Everybody has an obligation to speak up and if ever and there's different debates and those are some of the most fun meetings to be at because you have all these terrific brains in the room and they don't all agree. Sometimes, and most time they do. Most time they, they agree on lots of different things, including, you know, the premiums. You know, we have a lot of private folks in the room that believe fundamentally there's premiums you can have uh, for giving up liquidity. But they also, they all believe it's getting tougher and that that premium is getting smaller. And, you know, what do we do in the long haul? And you know, how, and so one of the things we did most recently at this February, getting back to your racial question about the February meeting, we increased our allocation of privates incrementally. So we went from, you know, originally it was 15%, then it was at 20% the last several years, and now we increase it to 22%. Not wholesale shifts, but until you look at the long haul, and, and you know, I, I always look love looking at the Yale report, and they have you know several years with of asset allocation. So you look at the current year, and you say, well, that's not much different from last year. Well, look at what it was five years ago. Look at what it was ten years ago. It's actually dramatically different in terms of what they've done with their domestic equity book and shrinking that and increasing the foreign equity exposure. So when you're around forever, that actually is a pretty big shift from 15 to 22 you know, where we are today and from you know fixed income of eight down to five and currently at two. So any given meeting, any given year, it's not um, wholesale changes.
0: Let's turn to the, the manager selection part of it. And I'm particularly curious to talk to you about private markets because that's certainly an area you know, you've been in your whole career. In the venture capital world, I heard a statistic recently that Something like 50% of all the profits earned from venture capital firms have only come from a very, very small subset of venture capitalists. I don't know if the number was 50 or even 10 firms or some incredibly concentrated number. So if that's the case, everyone knows who the winners are. How do you create a portfolio that either you have access to the winners or you don't? And then how do you live with that? Knowing it has nothing to do with you. It's really whether you're able to get access.
1: Well, I think it's an age old question. I think the debate will it's going on for a long time. It'll continue. It'll never get old. I think it's it's true to the nth degree with a caveat. And the caveat is that there it's not that's not all the returns. That you can still generate great venture returns if the firms are small enough and if they're going early stage enough and they get meaningful ownership positions in some of the better companies. And certainly it favors the incumbents because when you have a brand, pick your favorite. You know, I think everybody, I think every, I would agree with that. I think everybody knows who the top five firms are, the top 10 firms are for the most part. But then there's a whole, they don't invest in every great company. And there are you know groups that you may never have heard of before. You might have heard of their companies. You may not have heard of who the top venture capitalist in terms of ownership was. Or maybe they're the only ownership position. And you'll be like, wow, I never heard of that group. And they are, maybe they're the next great group. Or you can say, no, they're perfectly fine kind of where they are. They don't need to grow, but they'll continue to just make great investments every now and then. So as it relates to Rockefeller, when we faced that, we looked at our venture program and we were, because of who we are as a medical research institute, we had a lot of healthcare VC exposure. I think we had nine incumbent managers fund families that was the bulk of our venture exposure. And at the time, I think it was over 10% of our total NAV of the entire endowment was in venture. And of that, over half of it was healthcare, VC. Now, a student of venture capital going back you know, 20, 30 years would say, you, you can have you know, IT and healthcare and IT won. <laughs> there are times where healthcare does fine. And in, in the last couple of years, it's actually done great. But for the most part, on the whole... IT's done better. So when we thought about how do we resuscitate our venture program, we broke it down into parts. We said, number one, why don't we try to get access to, to this kind of elite group? We know who they are. Why don't we call them? And so that that the cold calling, you know, that I did at Vista another place, <laughs> and other places that held training. Because <laughs> you just go and give you give it away, you can nothing to lose. Now it wasn't a complete cold call. I certainly had known about some of these groups from my time at Common Fund. Rockefeller is an unbelievable brand. But most folks have never heard of us outside the science world. So we put together a pitch book, going barring from my analyst days, and said, We got to market ourselves. Don't take anything for granted. Uh, Rockefeller is a gigantic name, but folks will confuse us with the foundation, with Rockefeller Brothers, with a lot of the different entities that are out there. And have and, and most folks have never heard of what we do, you know, outside, I mean, certainly in the IT space. They're just not in our world. So we had to pitch on what we are, who we do. And we talked to all the usual suspects, and we got, some not everybody said yes. Not everybody, you know, shocking. Not everybody, you know, they, they have a surplus of organizations as amazing as ours, and they can pick and choose who they want to be with. And so we continue to, to knock on their doors, and then maybe we'll make inroads someday. But we did not make inroads with some. So that was prong number one. Was talk so to the incumbents you,
0: when you go about that. Right, when there's excess demand for a fund. There's definitely a tendency to not do the type of research that you would do if there's excess supply. A new fund's coming out. You're going to spend time. You're going to do your full swath of diligence, see who the people are, what deals they did. Do you think that there's a tendency of investors to get lazy or complacent just by pounding to get access with certain firms that have demonstrated success in the past?
1: There's an element of you have to, you have to court before you know, you want to date somebody. <laughs> I mean, I'm going down a terrible path in terms of an analogy. But you don't know yet if you want to marry that person, meaning you know, actually make a commitment to them and they make a commitment to you. Because you don't know. You don't have the data. And that data is incredibly prized. It's not publicly available. It's not remotely publicly available, even, sometimes even privately available. <laughs> they just won't give you the information. If we, at the end of the day, I think you have to stick to your underwriting criteria and stick to your diligence process. That will save you at the end of the day. But it does mean you have to find you have to be creative in terms of how do you get the information that you need to make the decision. I can tell you with complete confidence, our committee won't let things slide by, if you will. They won't let us get complacent. Quite the opposite. They keep us on our toes, which is um, a wonderful, wonderful place and to be. Have you had
0: examples of getting to the courting stage where all of a sudden the venture capitalist? accepted your phone call, you're having the conversation, and then as you got into it, you decided hmm, this isn't quite what we thought from the Absolutely. outside.
1: Absolutely, all the time. Really, <laughs> like today, <laughs> and that's that's the that's the the crux where you have to look in the mirror. I mean, for us, we know what the answer is. The, you know, and, and we you have to take it everything. It's not easy. You have to take everything into consideration. And say, well, was you know was there are the returns a certain way for was it a bad vintage? Was it just uh, was it a bad employee? You know, is this exactly the wrong time to to get off the bus with them? And, and one of the research that I did at Common Fund that I participated in. And we found out that even the top quartile best managers of all time will have at least a fund in their history that is not top quartile. So, it's you know, returns are persistent for sure in the long haul and in the overall body of the record. But it may not be for each individual, you know, fund, which is, again, the folly of market timing for us to think, okay, okay, this is the one that will work. That one won't. You really, there's so many things that go into it that you really can't underwrite. You have to just say, no, no, that's, you know, stick with your best managers. That is that is one of our primary maxims.
0: So let's turn to a couple of lessons learned along the way. What's the biggest mistake that you made? And and more importantly, what did you learn from it?
1: Wow. There's been several. And I would say, I'll get, I'll answer that directly. I would say that in general, I think what's most important when you, you're you going to make mistakes all the time when you make them learn from them, try not to make the same mistake twice. It may look different the next time around. It's like, oh no, this is a whole different. But try to you know our business a lot of it is pattern recognition and just and just looking at things and seeing patterns and and using the history. It's 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 very much a lear- investing. I think is a learning field. The longer you're in it, the better you should do because you're going to see more. You're going to be more experienced. That the caveat that comes with that is if and only if you're learning from your mistakes. To think that you're not going to make mistakes is is crazy, but what do you learn from them? And how and how do things that look similar? You can say, okay, given what we did before, this may not be the right way to go. Let's go this direction because this seemed to work before. So just just recognizing that that all those things happen. I would say this may not be exactly what you're thinking, but we made a mistake on hiring on on one of our our junior folks, and it's, it wasn't devastating. And it, but it just it in terms of you know, we're a small team. We're Six investment professionals, you know, in our kind of corner part of, of Founders Hall, and that's not a very big team. So everybody, and if you also subscribe to the philosophy that we do, which is everybody works on everything. We're all generalists. Um, we all contribute. We made a hiring mistake, and we realized we we kind of well, will just let it. You know, let's let the person kind of ride out to the end of the program, which was fine. But what it did to our culture. And again, you're looking around, there's only kind of five other people, and one of these does not look like the other. And when we had kind of a, within six months, the first six months, we kind of said, here's where you are. Here's where we think the trajectory needs to be. Here's how we think you can get there. Here's the resources we can provide to help you get there. We noticed uh, instantly there was an improvement, and then it kind of flattened out again. And so it never got to the point where we needed it to be. and let it ride out for the full two years. Not saying that, you know, it's not the end of the world, but what it says to me is how important it is to hire
0: right. And what's the lesson? Would you, if the same thing happened again, would you cut the cord earlier?
1: I think we would do that for sure.
0: And how about a big winner and and lessons learned or how you exited?
1: I mean, again, I hate to use names, but Greylock is, you know, one, we love all of our managers. Greylock was proof to us that what Again, when we talk about rebuilding the venture strategy, our thesis, a piece of that thesis worked. We weren't sure if it would work. We had no clue. But we never had spoken to, as an institution, we'd never spoken to Greylock. And, and there's plenty of groups that we didn't speak with, but we're like, we kind of scratched our head like that's on everybody's list in terms of a top organization. And there's a lot of reasons why. And it's not just because of their financial returns. I would say that's looking at the end game and not looking at how they got there. We look at how they got there and they do meetings twice a year. They used to do meetings four times a year. And the the level of transparency and the level of disclosure and how they think of the world as a partnership, not only with their portfolio company CEOs, their own team members, their own LPs, they think of it the whole thing as a partnership. That is so... Refreshing. I'd like to say it's 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 so commonplace and it's so not. (laughs) It's so not. And we try to really find that in every one of our groups. But that was not easy. We spoke with them for several years, and when we and you know they they love the story, love what we do. They don't increase their fund sizes. They do they every one of their existing LPs wants five times more than what they have. So for us to get a little bit with them means somebody else has to give up a little bit against their will, <laughs> if, if nothing else. So that was one that it was, it was very helpful to get across the finish line. So I
0: want to close with a bunch of questions that don't necessarily have anything to do with investing, but are kind of always fun to talk about. What is your favorite book?
1: I would say right now, um, I think it's very timely. My daughter, who's in eighth grade, we just got her a copy of Animal Farm and, from George Orwell. And I'm actually... You know, I'm reading Timely reading, indeed, unfortunately. Very much. I mean, and not just here, just you know, throughout yeah. the world.
0: What do you know now that you wish you knew 10 years ago?
1: Oh, wow. I love when other people get this question. <laughs> <laughs> I would... You know, you could phrase like, well, what advice would you give yourself kind of 10 years ago? I guess I would say, don't be overly consumed with a path to success, whatever that means, like meaning one path. There's multiple ways to skin a cat. I think back to Berkshire Partners. Every annual meeting, that whenever you're at it, they always say there's, you know, we look for companies and investments that have multiple ways to win. There's multiple ways to succeed in this world. There isn't one prescribed path. And if if you're, hitting a a dead end somewhere that's okay retool rethink about what you want to do and if you have a general idea on the macro sense on where you want the direction of your life to go in terms of do you want to do you want to have a family do you want to have a spouse do you you know do you want to have a career in a certain geography what have you it, the big pieces are in place but then when you actually get to the micro don't be overly consumed if you're in a dead end job if you're not where you want to be that's okay just keep on, keep on trucking, yeah. <laughs> and keep no, that's on. Great. I think of like the batting cage example. Since we're in baseball season, keep swinging. You know, the pe- the pitches are going to come. Most of the times, they're going to be out of the strike zone. It Doesn't matter. You're going to whiff a couple times. Keep on swinging. You'll you'll, you'll if you if you hit three hundred ten, you're you're, you're in the hall of yeah, fame. Great.
0: <laughs> Tom, thanks so much. It's so much fun. Ted, my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you've liked what you've heard, please rate a review on iTunes or Google Play to help others find out about the show. Have a good one and see you next time.